The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is episode 219. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Very special evening tonight, Sawyer. Very special evening indeed. Thank you. You're welcome, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Well, our guest is going to be driving, so I'm calling shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny, and you'll find out why the joke is funny in a minute. And also joining us, you might remember her from episode 104 of Talking Space Podcast from Astronomy FM. Please welcome back Tavi Greiner as our special panelist. Welcome. Hello, and uh, thank you for having me tonight. Not a problem. We're glad you're with us. And Gina is at a high school reunion and is unable to join us for this episode, but she will be back next week. Joining us today is a very special guest. This man is a programmer for the Jet Propulsions Laboratory and has quote-unquote driven the MERS, the Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. So please welcome with us Scott Maxwell. I'm going to start with the obvious question that everyone wants to know. Um, uh, How did you come to be one of these rare people who drive a rover on another planet? Um, well, there's there's two versions of my answer to that question. The short version is, um, like like pretty much everything good in my life, I sort of fell ass backwards into it accidentally. Um, the uh, the longer version is, um, uh, I, I kind of made a good impression on the right people at the right time. Um, when I started working at JPL, I was working with uh, in a group that had happened to include a guy named Jeff Bizadecki, and Jeff Bizadecki, uh, as it turns out, is uh, good friends with uh, Brian Cooper. Uh, Brian Cooper was the guy who drove the very first rover ever on Mars, uh, Sojourner. And um, after Sojourner was a big success, uh, uh, they were basically going to do another version of that mission. And uh, Brian Cooper went to Jeff Bizadecki and said, um, you know, do you want to work on this uh, uh, software with me? You know, I want to write a bigger, badder version of the software I I, I wrote to drive the the first rover around. Do you want to work on the software with me? And Jeff said, well, I'm interested in the mission, but I don't know if I want to work on that software. I kind of want to work on the lower level motor controller stuff. Uh, But I used to work with this really good guy named Scott, and maybe you should give him a try. And uh, Brian interviewed me and liked me. And so um, so that got me a job writing the software that we were going to use to drive the rovers around. Um, But it was not actually driving the rovers. And that was made very clear to me at the beginning that – uh, Brian would tell me all the time that, you know, we only have funding for you for a year. That's really kind of all we have. 
you know, so don't get too excited about it. There's no promises, no guarantees about what you'll get to do. And it was kind of like, um, I'm sure you guys have all seen The Princess Bride, and you know the part where Wesley's talking about the Dread Pirate Roberts, and the Dread Pirate Roberts is always telling him, you know, good night, Wesley, great work, uh, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was exactly like that, only like the, you know, the sort of the, the, the JPL funding related equivalent to that. You know, I, I love the work you're doing, Scott. It's a great job. We only have funding for you for a year. You're probably not going to get to do anything interesting. Um, but I kind of stuck with it, and, and um, Cooper, uh, and, you know, he was kind of telling me that, you know, every week. And then he started kind of telling me that every month, and then it was every couple or three months, and then he kind of stopped telling me that, and there was funding for me on an ongoing basis. Um, so, uh, so, so, so he liked me, and I got to stick around on the team and continue writing the software. And um, uh, it was in large part because of my, the position that I had writing the software that we were going to use to drive the rovers around. Um, that I ended up getting a job using that software to drive the rovers around. So I, uh, I because of that, I was in position to be uh, one of the original group of eight rover drivers for the Mars Exploration Rover mission. That's exciting. Um, now I have a couple of questions related to you know to what you were just talking about. And number one is, as far as going into your career with JPL, have you always been uh, enthused about space? Is this something that you dreamed about when you were a kid? Oh my um, God, yes. Was I it? I, I have been a space nut since I was a little kid. I, I don't know where it is, but I'm I'm informed by reliable authorities that there is um, cassette tape at me at the age of two years old talking about how I want to be an astronaut. And you know, I, I grew up being you know just just fascinated with space and space exploration. Um, but uh, you know, the, the the way I came to JPL, I I think it's kind of interesting. I, I I was growing up in uh, in a, a, a small town in in rural eastern North Carolina, an economically depressed area. And in a place like that, someplace like JPL just kind of seems like magic. You know, it seems like incredibly far away. And I remember very well that um, when I was growing up, I was, I was, you know, my dad was enthusiastic about space travel. And he, you know, from, from the days of Tom Corbett, Space Cadet, uh, on the radio in the 1930s or 40s or whenever it was, um, right up, right up, you know, and he, he kind of brought me up with the bug. And, and we had this, uh, I remember very well, we had this, uh, this, this television set, a little kind of 12-inch black and white television set. Um, and I was hungry for anything that came across that TV set that had anything to do with space, whether it be Cosmos or, you know, news reports of things like, uh, like the Voyager flybys, uh, at at Jupiter and Saturn. Um, and it was because of this, that, that JPL was even on my radar in the first place. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and yet to me, it just kind of seemed like that it was this thing that was, that was really far away and that I would, I would never get to work there. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it just you know, kind of seemed like it would just exist in the realm of fantasy for me, um, and and yet here I am doing it now, and 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 being there now, I really see the truth of uh, the 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 statement. I I think it's the the Buddhists who say, um, you see the mountain before you, you climb the mountain, and when you look back, you see that there never was a mountain; there was only yourself. And I I think that that was very much true in my case as well. I know the rovers were expected to last only about three months or ninety days. How long did you think that they were really going to go, and did you ever expect them to continue for six years? No. Uh, everybody, everybody who has placed a bet on how long the rovers were going to live has lost so far. Um, and you know, I, 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 I bought in. I gotta say, I, I bought into the whole. You know, like I, I, I believe that the rovers were only going to last ninety days. I think there were people on the mission who who considered themselves optimists in that they thought that maybe we would double that. Um, possibly even we would survive through the first um, Martian winter, and maybe you know we would survive for a year on the surface. 
Um, I, you know, I think that, that if you had, that there were, there were certain people who might've been willing to sort of place long bets that we would have lasted, you know, as long as, as several months or, or even a year longer than our extended mission. Nobody thought that we were going to last anything near six years and to have, you know, to be six years into a mission and, and still be getting science back every day from the surface of Mars is, is beyond our, our wildest imaginations. And for me, you know, you, you look at it from our perspective um, to, to try to communicate something of the magnitude of, of what this is like for us. Um, people who worked on the mission uh, on Mer put in three and a half really tough years. We were trying to do a 10 year mission in three and a half years. So we were six and a half years behind schedule on day one. And, and we were slaving and missing dinner with families and putting off vacations for three and a half years in the hope that we would get three months on the planet. And, uh, and, and, and we considered that to be not just a worthwhile trade, but an incredibly great trade that we got, that we were, we were, you know, we were over the moon that we got a, an opportunity to make that kind of trade with our lives. And so, and so in that sense to, to be rewarded, not with just 90 days on the surface, but with six years and counting on the surface, like, that is that is phenomenal, and and nobody thought we were going to get anything like that return. Just never, never, never would have thought it. Not that I'm complaining. Scott, I got a kind of a follow up question with talking about uh, about your job and what it was like, uh, your first impression or your first thoughts of working at at JPL. But the question is, does the duration of a mission does that strictly equal how long you get a paycheck? I mean, is do do people have, you know, those day-to-day -day life concerns of well, if if the mission ends, you know, I'm out looking for a job. How does that work at JPL? It's it's kind of more complicated than that. Um, most people at JPL have funding from multiple sources. Um, for example, I'm paid by both MER and by MSL, uh, our, the next rover that we're planning to send. Um, I have in the past been uh, been also funded by Athlete and by other things at the same time that I was getting money from MER, but Phoenix and, and other projects. So if any one, so, so typically you have a bunch of irons in the fire, and if any one of them goes away, you can kind of spend you know a little more time on your other thing while you're looking for other work, for example. Um, so if I came in tomorrow and and you know God forbid the rovers were gone. Um, I'd be able to charge all my time to MSL while I looked for some other work. Um, even if I only, you know, I only had Mer, and there are some people who are full-time on Mer. Um, if the rovers went away tomorrow, well, you know, there's some cleanup work to do. There's some documentation to do. There's, there's reviews to do after the fact, that kind of thing. That pays for people for a little while. Um, the institution will pay for people for a little while to look for other, other funding sources and so on. And, um, and there's a whole lot going on at JPL that isn't connected to any specific project. For example, for the first five years that I worked at JPL, um, I worked on uh, basically the ground data system, so the, the software that we used to analyze the data that we were getting back from a whole bunch of different missions. And so there, when you're in a position like that, if any one of those missions goes away, that's fine. There's, you're, you're, you're getting paid out of a pot that a whole bunch of missions are contributing to, and so, uh, so you'll, be, you'll be funded for a while. Um, plus, on top of that, uh, the funding kind of runs for fiscal year boundaries. Um, so, uh, so there's uh, there's some aspect where you know even if the even if the mission you're working on, whatever it is, disappears, um, there's a certain amount of money they've allocated for the fiscal year, and so you can kind of run that money out. I got another question on the uh, what's a, what a typical workday uh, goes like. Do you work? A, a, you know, a simple straight shift, or are you following 
uh, Mars day and night cycles? Well, we used to follow the Mars day and night cycles. That was the best possible thing. Um, as you might know, the Martian day is not quite the same length as the Earth day. It's 40 minutes longer. And because the, uh, because the rovers are solar powered, they care about when the sun is up in the Martian sky. They don't care about when the sun is up on the Earth sky. So for the first 90 days of the mission, we all worked on Mars time. And uh, that meant that if you came into work one day at 8 o'clock, then the next day you came in at 8.40, and the day after that you came in at 9.20, and then at 10 o'clock, and so on and so forth. And pretty soon you're coming into work at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and it was really all good. Now, I loved this. I loved working on Mars time. It was the best thing ever for, for a number of reasons. Um, one of them being that it emphasized the specialness and kind of uniqueness, if you like, of what we were doing. Because, you know, you'd, you'd be coming, I'd be starting my work day at three o'clock in the morning and there were news vans and, you know, I'm living on the schedule for another planet. Who does that? Nobody does that. Um, uh, also, um, I'm a night person and uh, night people, as it turns out, uh, adapt very well uh, to uh, Mars time. They adapt very well to, to, to lengthening of the schedule um, and, uh, and morning people don't. And so all the morning people on the project who had made me go to their seven o'clock in the morning damn meetings, like they were as miserable during Mars time as I had been during all the all the rest of the project going to their stupid meetings. So I was very happy about that. Um, and plus, you know, I just got 40 minutes of extra sleep every night. So I thought it was just phenomenal. I thought it was fantastic. But there were people on the mission who have kids and, you know, they, they didn't get to see their spouses and this kind of thing. And so um, so one thing and another, uh, it only took us about three months of living on Mars time before everybody uh, cried uncle. And we've gone back to a modified Earth time. Um, so now the way we work is we've shortened our planning day. So instead of working during the entire uh, Martian night, we work just during a, a we, we work a typically eight to ten hour day. And those eight to 10 hours are kind of normal-ish work hours. So we might start at 7.30 or we might start at 8.30 or that kind of thing. But we don't really start any later than like 11.30 or noon. And we go about eight or 10 hours. And then um, uh, what we do is when the downlink is going to be coming down from Mars um, at a time when it would be too late in the Earth day for us to plan a full day. So let's say the downlink is going to come in at three o'clock in the afternoon. That's really too late to get started on a work day for most people. Um, fortunately the, the Mars day is predictable. So we know in advance when this is going to happen. And what we do is we plan two days every other day until that phase passes. And then we can kind of get back into a phase where we're planning one day at a time. That was one of the, the uh, questions my children have, my two boys, they were wondering about <laughs> the, uh, working on Mars times versus working on earth time. Um, you know, awesome. and how do you adopt to that, adapt to that? Um, so. I, I, we, we, we got a lot of, um, a lot of help actually from the institution. Um, this had only been done, I think once before they'd only been attempted once before, uh, to, to my knowledge at least. Um, and that was on the, uh, the Mars Pathfinder mission, um, for the people who were operating the Sojourner rover and were, were, you know, tied to the, the, the Mars day there. Um, and they, in their case, they kind of made it up as they went along and it didn't really go that well. I think they only lasted a couple of weeks or so before there was kind of a, kind of a revolt and uh, and people really kind of realized for this mission excuse me based on that past experience that um that we we were going to have to go about it a little more systematically um so because one of the thing, one of the many things that Mer really did right was to take human factor seriously um they actually brought in a bunch of experts uh on sleep research and the experts uh did a number of things they installed blackout shades uh around the lab uh, or excuse me around our our building um, so that when you were at work, at least, you couldn't tell whether it was day or night. 
and they had a fatigue workshop for us. Um, so we spent a few hours uh, learning tips and techniques about how to live on that time. And so that was things like, you know, even on your off days, stick to the Mars time schedule and, you know, try to try to find a place in your house where you can sleep, even if it's the middle of the afternoon or whatever it might be. And the sun is up, you know, someplace where you can kind of block out the light. Um, and we learned some things about how how exposure to light uh, cues your immune system. And we got tips on how to use caffeine to our advantage productively to work for us. And, um, and we even got um, tips about, uh, you know, when you're in that phase where you're going to be going several days uh, between seeing, you know, people you know uh, in, your, in your real life, you know, your, your wives or fam- kids or whatever, um, ideas about how to, how to stay connected to them. So, you know, leave them notes about what's going on in your life, that kind of thing. And, and, and I was actually very systematic about that. That's interesting because that makes me think of probably what some of the astronauts may have to go through, um, you know, something similar, uh, you know, when they're going to be up at the space station. I'm, I'm not too familiar with what they do, but as I understand it, they try to keep the astronauts on a 24 hour schedule. Um, and here we were living on a planet with, that has a 24 hour schedule, but we were trying to live a 24 hour and 40 minute schedule on it. We actually, right. um, uh, we actually participated in sleep research studies. So they, um, certain people on the project, not myself, but other people on the project, um, got these little monitoring devices that they wore on their wrists. Um, and that was used to kind of monitor, you know, when they were awake and when they were asleep and what they were doing and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and it, and it became a, a, a sleep research experiment because this is the first time in history, as far as I know, that you had hundreds of people living on the schedule of another planet on this planet. That is really neat. That, that's cool. Now, one of the things you talked about, um, you were talking about the software that you've written, some of the software and you've, you've written, um, for a number of missions. Have you not, uh, I think Stardust, uh, which is now Stardust next going to Comet Temple. Were you involved in with that mission too? Um, I, I was not. Um, I, uh, I believe Stardust uh, actually used an, an older piece of software that I wrote. It wasn't. A, it was a, a software that was used by a lot of people to, com- uh, to, to kind of coordinate the commanding of spacecraft. Um, uh-huh. I, I think that there was an adaptation of that software for Stardust, but I kind of lost contact with it before that. Um, the software that I'm speaking of is a piece of software called RSVP, which is the Rover Sequencing and Visualization Program, or now the Robot Sequencing and Visualization Program, because we've used it for some things that aren't rovers, um, mm-hmm. which is an environment that gives you um, uh, the part of it that I wrote is the part that kind of lets you enter text commands, and it learns about your rover when it starts up and learns what commands it has and presents you with editors for it and so on. Um, and then there's another component of it that does 3D visualization so that we can see the world around the rovers in an immersive environment. It's, kind of, it's basically, you know, we have a rover that we can put in there. It's, it's basically a, a, a big video game. Um, so, uh, so Tavi, don't tell your kids this, but I do kind of get paid to both play and write video games <laughs> on another planet. Well, that is actually um, a question that my son had. Um, he wanted to know how, how can you relate driving the rovers to um, to playing a video game and they want to know if um, NASA has any plans for they would like to see more um, space related Xbox type programs video games and things uh, they have some that they, they play now where you are on another planet but they would like NASA to get involved with that is NASA involved with with it uh, these video programs in any way the, with the, you know, not from a marketing standpoint, but uh, perhaps um, I don't know as um, consultants. 
Um, well, not, not too much that I know about, but there is stuff on the NASA page. If you search for something called Eyes on the Earth 3D, for example, um, that's an application that has, gives you a 3D globe of the Earth. And you can sort of put your, you can see the Earth through the eyes of a whole bunch of different Earth orbiters. Um, so, for example, you can see, you know, uh, we have uh, uh, one Earth orbiter at JPL that, um, that gives you a view of carbon, monox or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And you can see from that uh, orbiter's viewpoint, like what the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere looks like. And you can, you know, see all the different pieces of data that are, that are supported by the different uh, uh, missions. It's not quite a game. Um, but at least it's a 3D environment where that's accessible to the public and that, uh, you know, lets you kind of relate to these different missions and see what it is, what kinds of information we're able to get about the Earth. Um, I thought it would be really cool uh, to, you know, put out a game for, you know, the Wii or whatever, um, where you could, you know, sort of drive a rover around Mars interactively and you'd have multiple ones of them and they'd shoot at each other and stuff like that. Um, that's and, what they uh, want. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if, if that's really NASA's kind of field um they they didn't seem to want to, to give me money to write it anyway but maybe i'll do it on in my copious free time spirit and opportunity uh are obviously more advanced than sojourner uh msl will probably be even more advanced than spirit and oppie um how autonomous are the rovers in a way that a non-rover driver or a non-robotically inclined person can relate to and um, what do you see to be the primary impact of artificial intelligence to future robotic missions? And how is uh, Aegis working out? Well, that's a that's a great set of questions. So uh, let me see if I can uh, if I can speak to that. We pretty much call it artificial intelligence until it works. Um, and when it's working, we tend to call it something else. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, the the rovers are are doing things on Mars that you know in the past anybody would have would have said is certainly artificial intelligence. And one of the cool things about them is, um, as you know from your question about Aegis, we've actually been able to make them smarter since they've been on the planet. Um, for example, um, when they landed on Mars, they had this, um, this really uh, dumb uh, uh, path planning uh, algorithm. So um, uh, one of the modes we can drive the rovers in is one where we say, as you're driving along, take images of what's in front of you and build up a 3D model of it. And if it looks scary, if it looks like there's too big a rock for you to drive over or too deep a ditch for you to drive through, then go around. And when we first landed the rovers on the planet, um, the version of this hazard avoidance algorithm they had would basically drive up to an obstacle and say, oh, look, there's something scary in front of me. Let me take a step backward. So they'd drive backward a little bit, about 50 centimeters or so. They'd take another image and they'd say, hey, look, there's nothing scary in front of me. Let me drive forward. So they'd drive forward, and they'd say, oh, look, there's this obstacle in front of me. Where did that come from? And they'd drive backward, and they would just kind of do this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes they'd turn a little bit, and they'd be able to get around the obstacle. But a lot of times they'd just kind of do this little back and forth driving, which we, would, which we ended up calling rover dancing. Um, but because of this, the rovers weren't, you know, weren't, when we put them in this autonomous mode, they weren't making as much progress on the surface um, as we would have liked them to make. Um, so, uh, we actually implemented and uplinked, um, a whole new version of that algorithm, um, called DSTAR, the DSTAR path planner. And, uh, this is actually so sophisticated that if you were to drop the rovers down in the middle of a hedge maze, they would be able to find their way out. Um, so they can remember the whole world for something like 50 meters around themselves and actually remember, you know, what paths they've gone down before and not go down them again and so on. Um, so, uh, so that's one of the ways we've made the rovers smarter since they've been on the planet. Um, another way is, um, is with Aegis that you asked about. Um, that's something that, uh, that we just set up to, uh, to Opportunity. 
And for, for the listener's sake, um, Aegis is a new feature in the flight software that does some autonomous, a, a small amount of autonomous science. So the rover will drive to a new place, um, a place that we didn't have good images of before. And then what Aegis lets them do is Aegis lets them take a view of the world around them, wherever they ended up, and find interesting uh, features in the image, typically interesting rocks, and then go ahead and take high quality, high resolution uh, uh, images of those interesting features and send them on back to Earth. Um, so normally, before Aegis, what we would have to do is we would drive the rovers to a new place, we'd take pictures, and then the science team would get involved and look, you know, the next day the science team would get involved and look at the pictures, and then we'd have an argument about whether we wanted to spend the day taking, you know, uh, uh, images of interesting stuff or driving. And this way the rovers themselves can, can locate and take uh, high quality images of the interesting stuff. Um, the rovers have also gotten a feature called, uh, and, and that, by the way, has been fully tested and seems to be working very well. The science team seems to be really excited about it. They love it because it lets them do more science per unit time. Um, another feature that got added to the rovers is something called Watch, uh, which will watch for dust devils or clouds. Um, and that's returned us a number of images of dust devils and clouds from, from both rovers. Um, so these are all features that we've added to the rovers, and, and they're all features that, you know, that, that whether you want to call them artificial intelligence or not, they all definitely come out of artificial intelligence research. Um, the Aegis in particular, for example, is, is from the AI group on lab. Um, so, uh, so, so in those ways, the rovers are artificially intelligent. And then they also have some features that we don't particularly think of in those categories, but you might add to that category. For example, um, the rovers have a lot of self-monitoring. Um, where they can tell, you know, my temperature is getting too low. Do I need to run heaters autonomously? Have I lost track of what time it is? Do I need to ask for help from Earth and so on? So they have a limited amount of uh, ability to just sort of, you know, like they have a little auto autonomic nervous system, a little bit of ability to kind of monitor themselves and, and take care of themselves. Now, which rover do you exactly drive for? Is it Spirit or Opportunity? And personally, which is your favorite rover? Um, okay, so uh, back in the nominal mission, um, each of the rover drivers, in fact, most of the members of the engineering teams were assigned to either one rover or the other. Um, and I, as it turns out, I got assigned to Spirit. Um, so for the first uh, eight months or ten months of the mission, something along those lines, um, I, I exclusively drove Spirit. Um, and then there were other people who you know, might have spent a few days driving Opportunity, but were exclusively on Opportunity. Um, but ever since then... Uh, we've, we've all kind of tried to move back and forth. And so now most people on the team uh, can move back and forth between the rovers. There are a few people who are exclusively on one or the other. Uh, but most of us, and including me, um, have for most of the mission been kind of floating back and forth between the two rovers. And this makes things like scheduling easier. Um, you know, anybody can fill in for anybody, that kind of thing. So it makes things a lot, a lot simpler. Um, personally, uh, uh, I love both of my twin girls, so I love both Spirit and Opportunity, don't get me wrong. Uh, but my favorite rover, uh, personally my favorite rover has to be Spirit. And I think there's kind of two reasons for this. One of them is um, that, you know, I was on uh, Spirit, uh, as I said, in the nominal mission. So I, um, uh, so, so, so I know her from way back, and, uh, and I, feel, I just kind of feel closer to her. Um, and also because uh, Spirit was kind of the underdog. You know, she, uh, she, she went to Mars... She went 300 million miles to another planet, never to return. She went for one reason, which was to find evidence of liquid water. And when she wakes up and she's on Mars, um, there's no evidence of liquid water around her. We landed her in one of the most obvious places on Mars where there had to be evidence of liquid water inside a, a, a big hundred and something kilometer wide crater that, that looked uh, like it was an ancient lake. 
Um, and so we thought for sure there would be water there. Um, but it turns out that uh, what, had, what had happened was volcanoes had come along and covered up most of the surface of the crater uh, with lava. And so the evidence of water, if there was any, was buried probably tens of meters below her feet. And the science team was, you know, they didn't really want to quite say so out loud and they didn't blame us to, to their great credit. But they were, uh, they were kind of disappointed in spirit. And so I really felt from the earliest days that, you know, really kind of nobody loved her. And it wasn't until months and months and months later, until she was already long past her warranty expiration date, and we'd driven her, you know, uh, three or four times as far as she was ever supposed to be able to drive, that we actually got her up into the Columbia Hills and started finding evidence of, of past liquid water with spirit, too. Um, and so... Uh, um, so uh, for, for, for that reason and for a number of others that we, we might get into later, um, uh, you know, I just, I just kind of identified with spirit and I kind of felt like, you know, like I had to love her because nobody else did. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so I've always loved her best. But, but I, I will say um, I should probably be a little better about saying that, uh, that, uh, that, that her sister Opportunity has done a, a terrific work too, and has, has, has uh, you know, she, she might have fallen out of the sky and landed on evidence of liquid water so that everything came easy to her, but she's, she's a hard worker too, and, and, I'm, and I'm very proud of both of them. You're, unfortunately, you must really be upset with everything going on with Spirit since you're so connected to her. Uh, yeah? What do you expect is going to happen after the Martian winter? Do you think she'll wake up, and if so, do you think the science that she'll be able to refer to perform will still be as adequate even though she's stationary as she would have been moving. Well, let me tell you something about Spirit. Um, Spirit, as I said, uh, you know, went 300 million miles to the surface of another planet and didn't find what she went there for. Um, and it was pretty obvious from even when she was on the lander, it was pretty obvious, at least to the science team, that, that the evidence of liquid water that she went to Mars for wasn't at least in the spot where she had landed. Um, but did she give up? No, because she's not that kind of rover. You know, she rolled off the platform and onto the surface of Mars, and she looked around, and she inspected the rocks, and she went to this crater called Bonneville Crater, and, you know, where we were hoping there would be evidence of liquid water because something had fallen from the sky and punched a deep hole, and maybe it was deep enough that it would expose evidence of water. And was there evidence of water there? There was not. So did Spirit give up? No, she's not that kind of rover. Way off in the distance, way, 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 way off in the distance, there are these hills called the Columbia Hills. And I remember very well when we landed, Steve Squires was saying that, you know, maybe, maybe someday, you know, it's farther away than we were ever going to get to go. And there's no way the rovers were going to get that far. Maybe we get close enough to hills, we'd be able to take pictures that would maybe kind of give us some evidence. Spirit went all the way to those hills. Um, but that wasn't good enough. She had to get up to the top. And these rovers were designed, I, I remind you, to drive over things that are flat and have rocks on them the size of maybe big softballs. They aren't meant to climb a hill the height of the Statue of Liberty. But Spirit did. She didn't give up. She's not that kind of rower. She climbed all the way to the top of that hill, stood there, took a long look at the world around her, and when she was ready, she went down the other side of that hill and she kept on going. And my own personal view is a rover like that is not going to give up on something just because it's something like Martian winter. She's, I believe, you know, we predict that we're going to hear from her in September plus or minus a month, that that's when she's going to come out of hibernation. I believe that Spirit is going to come out of hibernation. I believe that we are going to complete the work of extricating her from this, uh, this treacherous soil that she found herself fouled in. And I believe that she's going to be back on the road. 
and she's going to be hobbled when she's back on the road. She only has four working wheels at this point. She's had only five for a while on a six-wheeled rover, and she has only four at this point and two anchors to drag around. She's not going to be as mobile as she was, but I don't think she's going to give up. I don't think she's ready for that just yet. And, and to, to answer your other question, you were also asking about, is she going to continue doing the science? Um, uh, yes, she is. Um, even if I'm completely wrong and Spirit comes back, well, not completely wrong, but even if I'm, I'm wrong about her mobility, if Spirit comes back to life and she's stuck in one spot, even being stuck in one spot, she can do excellent science. The reason that we're trapped in this soil is it's scientifically interesting. Um, it's this loose, flowery sulfate stuff uh, that, that, uh, that is the way it is because of past water activities. There's a lot of, of that that we can study. Um, <clears throat> we, can, uh, we can do measurements of the core of Mars. So Spirit actually sitting on the surface is able to participate in a radio science experiment that will tell us whether the interior of Mars is liquid or solid. Um, and there are other things we can do with her. We can monitor the Martian weather. Uh, we can possibly do a little more astronomy. We've done some astronomy with both of the rovers, and, and she might be able to do a little more. So they're very capable platforms, both of these rovers. And I believe that Spirit is going to be not just a, a, a capable stationary platform, but a capable mobile platform again. Uh, Scott, just a really interesting question. Now, I, in preparation for tonight, I was going over, I found a, a, a little snippet on uh, on YouTube of a talk that you gave at Gnomedex back in October uh -huh. of, two, of uh, 2008. Uh -huh. And something that really, really kind of stood out in my mind is you almost, you said you almost didn't go to the job interview for the yeah, JPL position. Right. That that's was right. like, that blew me away. I was like, why, <laughs> why wouldn't you almost not go? <laughs> Um, well, you know, I, I, I had this, uh, my experience of that was, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I'd grown up being interested in space exploration. JPL was absolutely on my radar. I mean, I knew what this place was and I was fascinated by Voyager and I knew the missions that were going on. And, uh, and, and, um, uh, I was, I was, uh, for various reasons I had, you know, I'd expected to go to grad school and get my PhD and, and in grad school, I decided against that. Um, I, I'd, I'd, I'd had cancer and my plans changed. I just kind of didn't want to do it. And I was kind of scrolling through the job listings and, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm kind of looking at, you know, computer software companies and, you know, oil drilling companies and things like this. And one of the things that came across the list was JPL. I'm like, Oh my God. JPL, really? The Jet Propulsion Laboratory? They have like Voyager and they've done all this stuff. Oh my God, I can't believe that. Ah, they'd never be interested in me. And I just, and I kept on scrolling by. And, um, and uh, it, it's, it's to the credit of my then wife that she, um, she said, you know, you should just go to the interview. Just go at least listen to their presentation and see what they have to say. And I think that was kind of what turned me around. I was like, well, you know, I know they wouldn't be interested in hiring me, but I'd be really interested in listening to them and hearing what they have to say. Um, so I signed up for it and I went uh, with really I just had the intent of, of hearing them talk to me about what they were doing. And um, turns out that the uh, you know, I, I had to sign up for an interview or in order to go to for an interview in order to go to the thing. And so uh, so I went to the little presentation and the interviewer talked to me later and she really liked me. And so I just, you know, <laughs> I, I honestly just I I really just wouldn't have gone because I honestly thought they wouldn't be interested in me. Who knew? Getting back to uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers, was there a moment where you were you're sort of driving or, or trying to plot the course for the next day and looking at things and going, well, you know, well, wow, that was close or, or something along <laughs> those lines? Or, you know, and, and what was so far um, your most rewarding uh, part of the, uh, the Mars Exploration Rover uh, missions thus far? 
Wow. Um, okay, that's that's uh, the the first question is a lot easier than the second question, so I'm going to take them in that order. Um, certainly, there have been times when we've looked back at things that have happened and we've said, "Wow, we we you know we we really dodged a bullet on that one." Um, and a lot of this had to do with kind of growing pains. You know, we just we 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 were learning about the Martian environment, especially in the early days. You know, we were learning about the Martian environment as we were interacting with it. Remember that this is really the first time that. You know, the first time that either of these particular locations on Mars had been explored, um, and one of them, at least, Meridiani Planum, is very different from any place on Mars that had ever been seen before. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, we, we didn't really have a good sense of how the rovers were going to interact with the soil they were driving over, how much they were going to slip. So if we commanded them to go 10 meters, were they going to go 10.0 meters? Were they going to go 9.5 meters? Were they going to go 8.2 meters? You know, we didn't really know. So we had to kind of learn that stuff as, as we went along. And a lot of things, it's kind of funny, we, we talk about this a lot. Uh, a lot of the things that we um, that we thought in the early days that we were terrified about didn't end up being problems, and we've learned a whole lot of things that that are problems. Um, for example, um, you you might be familiar with the story of, of Purgatory Ripple, um, where Opportunity was driving along this terrain, and the terrain that she landed, we sent her to Mer Meridiani Planum because from orbit it's about the safest place there is on Mars. It's really flat. Um, there's just, you know, there's, there's speed bumps in it, these, these little ripples that are formed, um, but, uh, th that are basically sand ripples, sand dunes. Um, but it's really flat and we were kind of driving along those ripples and we were driving over them and they were getting a little bigger, but it wasn't really a problem. And one day we came in and instead of going over the ripples, opportunity was in a ripple. She was buried up to her hubcaps in one. And we said, huh, we didn't know that could happen. Um, so that kind of thing happens all the time. Um, as far as, uh, 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 but, but, but now there's a little bit more of a science to it. You know, we've interacted with the surface enough with both rovers that we're not surprised now with anything like the frequency that we, that we were when we started. And it's a, a little bit up in the air as to, you know, what future rovers will experience when we go to new places. Will we see new dangers that we've never seen or have we kind of seen all the traps that Mars has to throw at us? We, we really don't know. Um, and, and that's the fun of exploration is, you know, finding that stuff out. So in answer to your other question, um, which was about the most rewarding uh, moment on the mission for me so far, um, that is really, really a tough question to answer. Um, I, I have, uh, you know, I'm so lucky in that I find that a hard question to answer because I have so many possible different answers to it. Um, but uh, but I, I would say that if I, you know, if I had to take one experience out of this mission and, and carry it with me for the rest of my life and the rest of them were going to disappear... Um, I think that that surviving that that spirit surviving to the top of Husband Hill probably has to be my number one thing. It's, it doesn't come without competition, but um, because I knew what it took to get there, I knew what it took to get there in terms of the team dynamics, and I knew what it took for the rover to get there. And it was such a heartbreaking climb up that hill where you know you would you would be trying to get up this one spot and you would just find that she just couldn't do it and you had to give up meters and meters of hard-won altitude to, to go back down the hill and find another way up and um and uh and and just after all that to finally achieve that goal and make it to the top and get the beautiful pictures that we got from up there uh to to, to me personally just on a, on a on a purely emotional level um that that has to stand as 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 absolutely one of the top if not be very top moments in the in the whole mission for me now for folks who who may not know uh can you sort of tell us a little bit about what athlete is and uh possibly where the uh also where the mars science laboratory is at this point i know it's uh, slated i 
think it's slated for a late 2011 launch, but uh, where exactly are we with those two particular projects? Okay. Um, Athlete is still kind of a research project. Athlete is not what we call a flight project. Um, okay. Athlete is getting Athlete is getting a lot of research money um, to try out different concepts. So uh, for, for, for your listeners, um, Athlete is a... Um, a gigantic, uh, it's, it's taller than I am, uh, 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 six-legged robotic metal spider on roller skates. Um, <laughs> it's got six really flexible legs. Um, it can like bring its legs up over its head. Um, it can like sit on, on four of its legs and use the other two to like grab onto stuff and pick it up. Um, so it can be used for things like uh, lunar ex- excavation and you know building a Martian habitat. Um, you can have it like squat way down and roll under. A, uh, 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 an astronaut habitat and then stand up and carry the astronaut habitat around with it. Um, it's a really just fascinating, flexible, uh, terrific design. And the, the production models of these are going to be, I tend to forget, but I think they're, I think that they are, they're either four meters tall or six meters tall. So they're going to be huge, just enormous, you know, army of, of gigantic metal robotic spiders on roller skates invading the moon. It's going to be great. Um, uh, so, so that continues to get a huge amount of interest and a huge amount of research money. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, they're not a flight project. That is, we don't have a specific mission for them to go to the moon and do, but they're so cool and so promising. And we kind of have the feeling that they will be involved in a, a future lunar mission that they keep getting a lot of funding and a lot of attention. So anytime we have VIPs come to the lab and they take the big VIP tour around, one of the things we show them is athlete. You know, the, the NASA administrator comes to the lab and he sees athlete. You know, Glenn Close comes to the lab and she sees athlete. It's stuff like that. Um, so, so that project, we don't have anything specific for it to do just yet, but it's not going to go away. Um, I'm sorry, you, you were going to say? I was just going to say, who doesn't like the idea of giant robotic spiders? That's, uh, that's too cool. <laughs> I, I certainly like it. And I, I, I loved working with it. Uh, I loved working on that project. It's a real shame I don't have time for it anymore. Um, but, uh, but I actually got to participate in one of the field tests and like use the thing to drill a hole. Um, it's a really amazing, flexible robot. Very cool. Very cool design. Um, uh, your other question was about uh, MSL. Um, MSL is still on track uh, for a fall or something like that, late, late 2011 launch, as you said. Um, uh, that project. Um, I, I think that I knew everything that I needed to know about that project when people, you know, I kind of noticed, I kind of started noticing that people who were leaving MSL to go over, sorry, leaving Murr to go over and work on MSL. Um, they all like within a week or two, they all just looked like haggard and worn and worried and run down. And, um, and they still kind of do, uh, there's, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of, uh, 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 that project has an awful lot of work to do, and I, I wish them well, and I, I, I want them to succeed, but I, I recognize the challenges that they're facing, and, and there's really, really smart people working really, really hard to make that thing work. The the blog that you've been writing has been uh-huh. absolutely amazing, first off. Can you tell us how all that, that the, the genesis of that, how that all started, and is there any plan in the, not too, in, in the future to possibly turn that into something more than just the blog, maybe turning it into a book of some sort? Because well, it would uh, be quite entertaining. It would be quite an entertaining read. I can see it already. Uh, thank you. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, that is uh, that. Uh, just to be clear, um, that's a personal project. It's not a JPL uh, thing that I do. So I do that on my own time with my own uh, resources and so on. Um, but the but my blog Mars and Me uh, Mars and Me dot blogspot dot com. Um, I, I was uh, the, the the way that, that happened was um, uh, back in the day. I thought it would be really cool if um, uh, 
if uh, if if you know, this is going back like six years when when blogs and things weren't quite as common. And I thought it would be really cool if there were somebody every day blogging about what was going on behind the scenes of MER. And um, at the time, I, I contacted the JPL press office about it, and they never got back to me, so I never got approval from them to do that as a JPL project. But um, I was mentioning earlier about the fatigue workshop. One of the things that they had mentioned was, you know, write notes for your family as a way to keep connected. And I thought, huh, you know, what I should do is I should go home every day and like write down what my experience of the mission was, and I'll just kind of leave that as notes um, for my wife, and that'll that way I'll be connected to her. Um, uh, my uh, uh, and um, and so I was I was in the you know, I was doing that and I kind of had an eye toward like I, I thought that you know maybe eventually the media office would get around to me and they would say it was okay so I was kind of writing it you know with a sense that someday it might be published um, uh, but but it wasn't specifically for publication um, anyway the JPL media office uh, never ended up getting back to me about it and five years later I started thinking you know I've got all these notes. Um, there's a lot of interest in in the project even now, and why don't I just start putting them online? And so I've been uh, releasing my notes from five years ago, five years delayed. And so we're you know when when the 60 year anniversary rolls around, I talk about our first anniversary and so on. I'm basically just kind of taking all those old uh, notes that I had written up, and I'm putting them online. Um, as far as you know, someday making a book out of it or something like that, um, I. I wouldn't turn down anybody who wanted to give me money for what I'm doing, um, but I'm doing it as a um, uh, very, very much as a labor of love and as a thank you to all the people like yourselves who've been interested in the project all this time and who are still following along. And I, I kind of wanted to give people a way to be a little more connected to the project and to feel, you know, to, to have a sense of what it was like to work on this adventure and what it was like to have a kind of, you know, to, to be as I am a very, very, very small part of this very enormous, big, historic thing. And, um, and so I'm, I'm very much committed to, um, uh, there will, you know, all the content or whatever that's in the blog will always be available for free. And if somebody wants to, to pay me some money to put out a paper version of it as well, maybe with some pretty pictures, that'd be awesome. And I'll, I'll take their money. Um, but, uh, but, but I feel very strongly about, you know, this is, this is my thank you to you and to, to hundreds and, and thousands more people like you who, uh, who are who have been interested in the project and 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 I don't I don't feel like the thank you should come with you having to pay me money for it. <laughs> well, if if I you know if anybody else hasn't hasn't read it, I I really invite everybody to to read the blog Mars and Me because it, it, I mean there there's first off reading it's an education, but there are parts in there which are just laugh out loud funny. <laughs> I mean you know I, I you write first off you write exquisitely. And Thank it's you. a treat. It, it's a treat just to go ahead and, and, and read the prose. But if 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 anybody seriously has a has an inkling, has a has an inkling, please do. You know, I really really encourage them to read it. Um, the Thank other you. thing, I appreciate that. You're quite welcome. The other thing at at at, at Gnomedex, um, you had mentioned Mars 3.0, and what exactly is that? Is that sort of trying to get you know. Uh, John Q. Public and, and Jane Q. Public sort of involved in what you guys are doing. I know I know NASA is is getting really really heavy into the social media area. I mean, part of the reason why this this show was born was out of that that social media um, effort. And um, I, I was wondering what is is being done in for for future missions to try to get the public more and more involved in in what you folks are doing. Well, um, uh, so uh, it, it, my original vision for Mars 3.0 um, was um, that uh, that uh, that 
that there would uh, be ways for people who wanted to not just follow along but contribute to a space mission who who might have a day job where they're doing accounting or they're doing um, you know they're they're a janitor or they're a student or they're doing something else that's you know that's honest work and that is respectable and that any of us would would salute um, but they you know but they dream about space and they want to find some way that they can make a contribution to the science or the engineering of a real space mission to have a way to do that um, uh, so, so that's my idea, and and I think that there's a lot of space too for things like you know Twitter and Facebook and things like that for people to interact with the behind the scenes of the mission. I think that's great, and and I fully support that, and I'm I'm so happy that it exists. I mean, I would have like been over the for you know for forgive the pun, but I would have been over the moon about that when I was a kid, and I think <laughs> you know, that that's possible for people who are who are kids now and are following along the missions now. I think that's fantastic. Um, I also want there to be a, a a place beyond that for people who who want to who want to take a step beyond that and not just follow along and be connected in that way, but actually participate. And, you know, maybe you can go home and you can spend half an hour in front of, you know, you can, you can do your, your day job that you, you love or you hate or whatever it might be, but you can go home and you can sit in front of your web browser for half an hour and you can make some kind of real contribution to a space mission. Um, that, that was my idea. And I'm starting to see uh, signs of that pop up in, in projects like Moon Zoo, for example, and Galaxy Zoo, where you know, anybody can do it. You can kind of like read a little introduction and, 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 and do a little uh, work and you're contributing. You're contributing to science. Um, I want to see a lot more done along those lines. Um, maybe things at different skill levels so that you could have people who don't know anything, don't know how to do anything but count craters. But boy, are they going to do that because that's how they contribute. You know, write it to people who might write code or, or in other ways contribute to, uh, to a mission. Um, I've had some, some discussions with our outreach people about that and... Um, uh, for goodness sakes, um, you would not believe the legal and other hurdles that are in the way of that. Um, but they're all on board with the concept. And so I, you know, and I, and I, and I know people who are working in outreach who are, who are loving it and who are trying to make things like that happen. And, you know, just part of what I try to do with my time at, at JPL is go around to those people and encourage good efforts and, you know, talk with them about, you know, things that they might do and so on to, to, to try to encourage that and make that happen. What do you expect to be doing in the future at JPL? Do you expect to be continuing programming? Do you expect to be continuing working on Mars rovers or on other planets? Um, that, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I kind of have this. Um, I know that there are people who think about their careers as like they think about their career as a thing, and they think about um, like you know this is kind of where I want to be in my future. And I kind of don't really work like that. Kind of my way is um, find like the absolute coolest thing that anybody is doing uh, or that could possibly be done and then work on that really hard. So um, as long as they want to pay me to write software, I'll write software. As long as they want to pay me to drive Mars rovers, I'll drive Mars rovers. If they want to pay me to work on athlete, I'll work on athlete. Um, there's so much really amazing stuff going on uh, at, at JPL and NASA wide that uh, one thing I can be very confident of is I'm not going to run out of interesting things to do. Um, so as long as, you know, I, I kind of have my foot in the door there, and as long as they want to keep paying me to do interesting things, I will take it. Now, one thing I find uh, really interesting talking to you, um, there's so many layers that are associated with any space mission, uh, and, you know, so many people who are involved, and everyone has their specialty. And, um, and some of those people are very involved in the technical aspect and 
not at, at all involved in the actual science. Um, some are involved in only the science, you know, for the most part. They, they have their primary focus. You sound like, to me, as much as you are involved in the technical aspect, that you are also uh, very interested in and very, interest, uh, very involved in the actual science, too, that you are um, directing the rovers to collect. Um, I am I am fascinated by the science. I actually kind of think of myself in in large measure as a uh, as like a groupie for science. Um, I am <clears throat> I am not personally a scientist, um, uh, but but it is my pleasure and my privilege to to be associated with the science team. And 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 I'm like for me uh, uh, paying attention to the science behind what we're doing. Um, not only I feel like it not only helps me do my job better, but it also kind of keeps me connected to why we're doing what we're doing. Um, you know, I, I think that just driving around Mars and taking pictures of Mars, like that is cool enough to be worth doing in and of itself. But when, uh, you know, we had our Mars science team meeting uh, this past week, we do this about once a year and the whole science team came out to JPL and kind of talked to each other about the work that they're doing and so on. And I went and sat through two days of talks that mostly went over my head, but about 10% of it actually stuck with me. And I love the idea that, you know, what we're doing is we're learning about how this planet works and about what it did a billion years ago and about, you know, how meteorites interact with the atmosphere and all this kind of stuff that we learn from how the rovers are, 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 are operating on the surface. Um, so, uh, so, so I'm a huge fan of that and anything I can do to, you know, to, to get the scientists better data, um, I'm only too happy to do. And, you know, understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it helps me to do that. And, and I just, you know, I just, I just love the, you know, to, to me, it adds a whole dimension to the adventure to be connected to the science in some way. Um, one of the things that's really cool and like super exciting for me, like you think that my job is awesome because I drive a Mars rover. I got excited about this. Um, uh, was, um, uh, I uh, was, was fortunate enough to work with uh, one of the principal scientists on the mission, uh, 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 Ray Arvidson, um, to help him with a paper that he's writing for uh, the Journal of Geophysical Research. Um, which is kind of like within that field, within, you know, geology, it's kind of the number two magazine. So if you're not publishing something in science or nature, like that's where you publish it. And I'm going to be a co-author on this paper because of the contributions that I made. And I love that idea that I'm going to have a paper in the Journal of Geophysical Research. I'm so excited about that. That is cool. <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> um, I can relate. Um, I have one more question. Um, and it's from my son. He's 12 years old. First of all, he thinks it's so cool that um, you have some association with Eastern North Carolina. We live in Eastern North Carolina. I grew up here, and uh, and I also spent quite spent quite a bit of time uh, in Florida, about 15 years in Florida. And he likes that. He sees some connection, a little bit of a connection. It makes you more real to him. I um, understand that. And uh, what's your son's name? His name is Hayden. Hey Hayden, nice to talk to you. you <laughs> oh, can, he'll love that. <laughs> you can totally. Grow up and be an astronaut. You can do what I'm doing. You can absolutely do it. He wants to do what you're doing. Well, and, you know what? If the rovers keep on going, I will be training you one of these days. So, you know, well, do what your mom tells you to do. Study, pay attention in school, all that kind of stuff. This can be your future, dude. That would be awesome. He wants to know if with driving the rovers, if you had a um, – if you had or do you even still have an actual test facility um, – you know, with some sort of simulated Mars and some rovers there that you work with to try this in, in, in real physical time in front of you. Yes, as a matter of fact, 
As a matter of fact, we do. We have an exact copy of uh, Spirit and Opportunity that lives here on Earth. Um, our surface system testbed rover, as we call it, or SSTB. And we have a little Mars. Uh, we have a, a, a big room, a little kind of Mars area. Um, and we, um, when we're you know, testing things out, when we're testing new versions of the flight software, when we want to try something with the rovers that we haven't tried before, we go down there and we, do the, we, we tend to do it there first uh, rather than do it on Mars first, especially if we think there might be any danger to the rovers involved. Um, this, came in, this comes in especially handy when we have something go wrong on the rovers. Um, we've, we've had uh, places where cables have broken and we've lost signals and we need to like, figure out ways to work around that and so on. And you can go down there and like this, you know, or we've had uh, you know, Spirit's wheel broke, that kind of thing. And we can go down there and you know, disable the corresponding hardware on that test rover and figure out how to get done what we need to get done anyway using that and then take those techniques and send them up to Mars. And in fact, um, as a great example of that with Spirit's embedding, um, uh, my girlfriend is getting her PhD in uh, uh, St. Louis, actually now has her PhD, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, and came out here for a couple of months and uh, and worked down in the test bed to mix up a batch of soil that would work like the soil that Spirit was trapped in. Um, and uh, you know, I I've always kind of thought of dirt as one thing, but it turns out it's a whole bunch of different kinds of things, and they're all kind of a little similar to each other, but not exactly the same. And uh, we basically, when she um, working with the rest of the science team, came up with a good formula for this dirt. We uh, built a big box to put the dirt in, slanted the box so that it would be like uh, the stuff that Spirit was in, uh, mixed up huge batches of this dirt and, you know, filled up, you know, basically had wheelbarrows and filled, uh, filled this box up with the stuff. Um, and so there were actually days when I was down in our test bed, not just driving a rover around, but down in the test bed up to my elbows, mixing dirt by hand uh, with my girlfriend so that we could, <laughs> so that we could uh, you know, build a custom kind of part of this test facility to do the extrication testing we wanted to do. Yeah, and that was one of his job. questions related to that was that he wanted to know how closely does the actual dirt resemble the dirt on Mars and the surface of Mars? Um, you know, he asked about the iron in the dirt and, and all of that. But even as far as consistency, um, you know, how closely do you know that you're able to get it to that? That's going to be um, important. This, this particular stuff, um, you know, we're, we were able to model certain properties of that dirt really well. There were other properties we couldn't model quite as well because we don't know exactly what the stuff on, on Mars is made of. Um, and so, you know, as we tried driving around in it, we would discover things and so on. So we got, a, we got a simulant that was good enough for us to do our testing. It was close enough to the stuff on Mars for us to do our testing. It was, was, was very good and was, you know, uh, blessed by some of the top scientists on the mission. So I think my girlfriend did a good job with that. Um, most of the dirt that we have in the... Um, in that test facility has actually been switched out. Um, we originally filled it up with uh, with a certain kind of uh, 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 dirt um, <clears throat> that turns out to you know to bust up into smaller pieces very easily, and so it becomes a lot of dust in the air. Um, and uh, MSL came along and said, you know, we want to take half your test facility, and we're going to have real hardware in there, and we can't have all the dust in the air. So they actually had all of our dirt scooped out. And then they brought in this, uh, this gravel. It's actually like a crushed garnet, if you can believe it. Um, and we now have that stuff in there. So what we're walking around on now is crushed garnet. Um, and I, I, uh, just so you'll know, I asked if I could take a handful of that stuff and retire, but it turns out it's not very valuable. <laughs> it's just pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool looking. It just, it just doesn't make as much dust. Um, but it turns out, like, if you want to, uh, if you want to, um, 
to, to study this stuff. We have scientists on the project who spend all day sitting in their offices thinking about how dirt works on another planet. And there's all different kinds of the stuff, and they have all these different models of it. And we do stuff with the rovers to like help them figure out what different types of dirt there are and all kinds of – it actually turns out like I never, never thought this when I started this mission. I thought that like rocks were not very interesting and dirt was even less interesting than rocks. But it turns out that stuff is fascinating. There's all different types of it, and you you know it, it works in lots of different ways. And – the guys who, and, and girls who spend their time thinking about it uh, turn out to be very useful to us because they can tell us how it will interact with the rover. So they're a very important part of the team there. Um, dirt, you know, who knew? Who knew? Uh, uh, dirt is fascinating. I, I, there I said it and I meant it. Scott, I got a question from reading your, your blog uh, and yeah. talking about some of the team members that, uh, that, that you refer to here and there. You know, to me, these seem like, uh, and yourself included, some of the sharpest people out there because – you're the you're the only ones doing this, <laughs> you know. Nobody yeah, else right. is nobody else is is planning and and putting it all together. So my question is, for students, for uh, for people that are working towards a career now, and even for the the young ones that are that just have a dream and 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 haven't gotten to to where they're sinking their teeth into the meat of of, of science and their in their education, the team dynamics, the people that you work with. How important is teamwork to to putting something together like what you work on? It is at teamwork uh, is is absolutely crucial to what we do to every aspect of what we do. Um, in 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 just driving the rovers, um, there's about a dozen of us who do that, and any day on shift, there are always two of us, at least two of us present, um, so that we can uh, work with each other, help each other out, check each other's work, and so on. And we we have to work together all the time. And then there are other people uh, on on both the engineering and science side every day that we interact with, and we all kind of have to work together to come up with the best possible thing for the rovers to do. Um, so so I, I would say that, that that teamwork is absolutely essential. And you know one of the things that Murr has done very right historically is to have a very good sense of that and a very good notion of what it takes to enable the team dynamics, to enable the team to work together so that we would get the best possible results out. And I think the, you know, the outcome of that really speaks for itself. Um, as far as your, your compliments about the, the rest of the team and me, I, I appreciate it. Um, I honestly, I have to tell you, I feel every day like, like I'm this kid who was playing pickup basketball in the corner yesterday. And like today, somehow I'm playing with the LA Lakers and I don't know how I got here, but everybody around me is really good, and I had better bring my A game. And I, I love them for making me feel that way, and, and, and I, I feel like it brings out the best in me. So if I'm doing well, it's because the people around me are doing amazing work. Kind of a wind-up, and we may, we may go beyond this. Uh, and if, if you've got a little story to tell on it, I would, I would sure like to hear it. But um, again, from reading what you've put out on the web – I understand you met a man at a book signing, and later on, he was at uh, a JPL Mars Exploration Rover anniversary, and he referred to himself as the first Martian. And I That's understand that he, he signed your book, and I guess that was the first time you met him at the, the book That's signing, true. to my old pal Scott. Uh, <laughs> That's can you, absolutely right. Can you, can you tell us a little of that, the author's story and of connecting to someone you've never met as an old pal? Um, yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you, I, I kind of have, have two connected stories there, as you point out. Um, uh, so the first story is um, 
is is uh, that I went to the signing, this book signing by uh, this author, Ray Bradbury, um, who was here in Pasadena at Roman's Bookstore. And um, the the story is um, uh, he was signing books, and they had a they had a deal where they were kind of passing out. You know, you, you brought your book, and they pass out little post-it notes, and they had you kind of write on your post-it note what you wanted him to sign the book, you know, how you wanted him to inscribe it. So, like you know, to Bill or to Wilma with love or whatever it might be, and. I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Like, I'm going to put in to Scott. Like, that's how I wanted to sign the book. So the first thing I thought of was, I really want Ray Bradbury to sign it. Um, I, uh, Dear Scott, I owe you $20, Ray Bradbury. Um, but then I thought I had an even better idea than that, which was, um, uh, uh, to my very best friend in the whole wide world, Scott, uh, Ray Bradbury. So I get up to the front of the line, and I uh, so that's what I wrote down on my little post-it note, how I wanted him to sign my book. So I get, I get up to the front of the line, and I hand my book um, to the, uh, to the woman who's taking the books for him. And she looks at it and she laughs and then she hands the book to him and he looks at it and he laughs and he looks up at me and he's like, do I know you? And I said, well, get to know me and it'll be true. And, uh, and he laughed again and he said, um, uh, when I was 14 years old, the great Marlena Dietrich once signed a photograph of herself to me, to my old pal, Ray. And so he signed Ray Bradbury signed my copy of Fahrenheit 451 to my old pal Scott Ray Bradbury it is one of my most prized possessions. I cannot believe that happened to me. So that happened, and then he fast forward about ten years, and um, for the fifth anniversary of the uh, Mars uh, uh, exploration rover mission uh, last year in January, uh, we were having a little event in Von Karman where we had the uh, the science team and so on kind of come out there. And um, our project manager, John Callis, introduced our special guest, and our special guest uh, turned out to be Ray Bradbury, uh, the very same Radbury, Ray Bradbury who is uh, my old pal, apparently. Um, so they brought him out, and he, um, he immediately, like we just, like everybody in the place stood up and gave him a standing ovation because this is the guy who made the dreams that we are turning into reality. You know, this is the guy who... Um, who, who had this vision of Mars and this vision of us going to other worlds and, and exploring them as new places and making them real and making it seem like someplace we could go. He was the person who inspired and, and, and fired us up about, about doing this stuff and that, that we are then turning into a reality. So he immediately, of course, immediately got a standing ovation from the huge, a huge standing ovation from the whole place. And uh, as you say, he, he gave a little speech uh, where he was really funny and entertaining and, and referred to himself as the first Martian, which is something we absolutely had to agree with. And it was my privilege after that, like I, I, I immediately, uh, one of the other rover drivers, Ashley Stroop and I had exactly the same idea, which is we have got to give Ray a tour of the Mars Exploration Rover area. We've got to give him a tour of Murops. Um, so we managed to uh, to um, to kind of shoulder our way through the crowd, and and she managed to get a hold of him, and we uh, took Ray up to the um, to the Mer, uh, uh, what we call the SOWG room, where we have a, a meeting every day to kind of plan out the the day at a high level, um, and um, and and we were kind of giving a, a, a picture of the you know we we have this room where we have printed out pictures of Mars, panoramas the rovers have taken in full color. And it so happens, nobody planned it this way, but it so happens that if you take a guy in a wheelchair, as, as he is now, he's like 90 years old or something, and you wheel him up to the panoramas, he's at just the right height to see those panoramas from the perspective that he would have if he were standing there on Mars. So we got to take Ray Bradbury to Mars. 
and I showed him about the Mer model and I was kind of sitting there in front of um, the Mer model and I and this thought struck me. I remembered reading the story about Ray Bradbury a number of years ago in an airline magazine where it talked about the fact that he never learned how to drive a car because he's always distracted by his imagination. And I said, you know, Mr. Bradbury, I, I know you, you never learned to drive a car on Earth. How would you like to learn how to drive a Mars rover? And he loved the idea. And so we took him over to the software that I helped to write that we drive Mars rovers with. And we showed him a little bit about how to use it. And it was the most phenomenal. And I, and I have to say, honestly, one of the most meaningful and touching things that has happened to me in this entire mission is getting a chance to take Ray Bradbury to Mars in, in the small way that we can to actually give him that in exchange for everything that he's given us as a, as a little tiny thank you for the, for the wonderful things he's done for, for us and for millions of people around the world is, is just like, I, I, I cannot believe I'm, I'm that lucky. I, I, I can't believe that's my life and that I, I get to do that. So Scott, if uh, anybody wants to learn anything more about you here, uh, what would be a good website they would want to go to? Well, you can learn more about the mission at uh, marsrovers.jpl.nasa.gov. And Tavi in particular, you probably know this already, but uh, you or anybody else out there who's interested, every picture that we get from the rovers, every picture that we take uh, from the rovers goes up on that website within hours of showing up on Earth. Um, if, you, uh, if you visit the website at the right time when I'm sleeping, you might see a part of Mars that nobody has ever seen, and a part of Mars at least that I have never seen before. Um, so all, all, you, know, you want to learn anything about the project, you can go to marsrovers.jpl.nasa.gov. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Excuse me, I am I am Mars Rover Driver on Twitter, and um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, my uh, my my blog from the mission, where I'm, I'm uh, posting my notes from the mission uh, on a five-year time delay, is at marsandme.blogspot.com. Just Google for Mars and Me, and you'll find it. Scott, again, I have to say a huge thank you for being here with us this evening. Uh, I know it's a holiday weekend, but. Uh, Again, a huge thank you for being with us tonight. This has been a, one of the most delightful evenings we've had on the show. Oh, no, it's awesome. It's, it's great to talk to you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And hopefully we'll, you can, uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have, you know, if you want to, we'll, the door is always open for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Once again, thank you, Scott, for joining us. Thank you as well, Gene McCulka. Always a pleasure, Sawyer, and this evening, again, uh, a delightful evening to have uh, Scott Maxwell with us, and a huge thank you for him to be here, especially on a holiday weekend. Yes, indeed. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Uh, here I am again. I'm speechless. I've heard so many things I didn't know, and I'm so excited to learn more and got so many more different directions to go look and to find out more. Uh, wow. You're not kidding. And thank you as well to Abby Griner. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, what you guys didn't see was that I booted Mark out of that shotgun seat, and I'm up there now. <laughs> <laughs> hey. 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 Well, I, look, you know, it, it is, after all, we, we had the Indy 500 today. We had the, uh, <laughs> the, the Coca-Cola 600. You know, you're, you're you know, come on. <laughs> there you go. All right. There you go. <laughs> I'd say now it's time to kick this show out of overdrive (laughs) (laughs) and on that terrible joke have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are